0: Today, though, we'll be putting this online at about 2 p.m. So if you happen to see it on Facebook and know someone who's not here today, would you uh, share it with them? And fathers, if you're home uh, listening to this at some point in time in the future, let me encourage you to get out your Bibles, uh, sit around with your family, and and lead them in the Word, um, focusing your attention together uh, in worship. So Matthew chapter 18 this sermon is entitled, Shepherding Our Little Ones, Part 2. We started this last week. Let's read together the entire chapter. And if you would, uh, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? I know there's a lot of verses here. That's okay. It should be pretty familiar to us. But I would like for us to stand in honor and reverence to the fact that um, Christ has spoken. The living God has spoken to us through His Word. The Bible says this. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said... Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a child to himself and uh, set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the sea, in the depth of the sea. Verse 7, Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into fiery hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Verse 15, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed." If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Verse 21. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. And so the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before saying, "Uh, "'Have patience with me and I will repay you everything.' And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt." But that slave went out and found, out, uh, found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him into prison until he should pay back that which was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank Him for His word. Father, we do thank You for this word. May you use it in our lives to make us more like Jesus. May you allow us to be attentive to it. May our hearts be open to receive it. And Lord, we're asking, begging that you would work in and amongst our midst today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So, like I said, last week we began looking at Matthew 18 and and entered into what is really just one really long sermon that we split into two parts entitled Uh, shepherding our little ones and if you remember from last week we opened citing an article released by world magazine entitled we too right it was a play on uh, the me too movement the article reveals several instances of those who are called to shepherd god's people who have actually used that opportunity to misuse and abuse god's people we saw how regardless, we know, there's, you don't have to tell us that that's wrong, right? That this is an absolute wrong. In fact, it's a wrong we like to get fired up about. Yet, it becomes even more wrong after we see what Jesus is really saying to us in this chapter in God's Word, Matthew 18. And so remember the context. Remember, Peter comes up to Jesus and he wants to know uh, who will be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Who's going to get that house on the hill right next to yours in this kingdom? And Jesus responds with telling him that greatness is going to come in how you love these little ones, how you give your life to serve these little ones. Remember, the the kingdom of heaven is filled with broken, weak, dirty, messy people. And and among those, uh, uh, little ones who have faith like a child. Faith that, that knows it cannot come from anywhere else but dependence upon Jesus. And so, in light of what we looked at and saw in that, that text, in this context, we determined that the main idea of, really, Matthew chapter 18 is that Jesus, uh, leader, or, uh, leaders love Jesus' little ones. Leaders love Jesus' little ones. And then remember, we gave four lessons from this text from shepherding our little ones. Last week, we only looked at one of those lessons. Little ones are weak, we said, so don't cause them to stumble. But we had to get the framework and the context and the right frame of mind to understand what does that even mean, right? Uh, Remember, we define this idea of causing them to stumble, not merely just causing them or leading them to to sin or in any way uh, to reject Christ, but it's in contrast to receiving them, uh, in contrast to leading them to recognize that Jesus is able to save. That's what it means to cause a little one to stumble. When you, by your actions, words, or deeds in any way, shape, or form, lead someone away from, from them knowing that Jesus is able to save or that he desires to be with them. He says, temptation to sin is necessary. It's inevitable, so therefore, lead these little ones to depend on Jesus, not to reveal to them a Jesus who is unable or unwilling to love them in spite of their sin. So remember, this is a warning primarily for shepherds, for pastors. It was for the apostles, the disciples, but those who would be great among God's people, but for all of us. To not abuse the little ones whom Christ have purchased with his own blood. Not to cause them or tempt them to stumble. Not to sin against them, to use them and abuse them. But instead to faithfully discharge the duty and responsibility of a shepherd. This is what it means not to cause little ones to stumble. Not to to, to lead them to think that Jesus is unable or unwilling to save them. We talked about all the facets we tend to struggle and do this uh, in our day-to-day lives. But I think we need to go ahead and move on to lesson two. Lesson two is this. In, in referencing, uh, teaching us how to love and lead these little ones. Uh, Jesus teaches us in this passage that sheep will go astray. It's a reality. Uh, sheep will go astray. Again, remember the context. Jesus is talking about these little ones back in verse 5. He's still referring to those little ones whom he describes as those who believe in me. That's the reference. That's the context. Still where we're at here today. And all of this holds together. Okay, these are not different ideas. They, They seem like that, and they're often preached like that in Matthew 18, is that these are different ideas, different passages, but this is really one idea here in Matthew 18. I want you to look with me at verses 10 through 14. Look what the Word of God says. It says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them have gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now, I don't know if you've, if you've ever heard that text preached at all, but if you've heard that text preached, I would not be surprised that when you had heard that text preached, the primary emphasis you heard it preached was evangelical, Right? That the emphasis is going and looking for lost sheep who are not believers. The problem with that is Jesus says from the very beginning, he says, see that you do not despise these little ones. Well, who are the little ones? Again, they're the ones who have believed on Jesus. He's talking about those who have receive those who are coming, those who have heard the gospel and believed already. So the emphasis here in Matthew 18, in this particular passage, is on the duty and responsibility of the pastor, uh, the leaders, those within the, uh, the, uh, the Christ shepherds who received the baton from him to care for the sheep, to care for Jesus' sheep. Now, obviously... There there is an application here for all of God's children who have not yet come to believe, as well as those who have. But if we're reading the text and listening to the text in context, letting the text speak as it speaks in the flow of the passage, Jesus isn't really teaching on evangelism here. He, He did that back in chapter 10, and he did that clearly. Luke, Jesus is instructing his disciples about the shepherd's responsibility regarding the sheep who wander off. Again, uh, the assumption is that we know, the context is, that the kingdom of God will be filled with messy, dirty, broken people. And if you're offended by that, you're hearing me correctly, right? (laughs) That's the case. Even though they've already come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they have not entered immediately into glory. Uh, they will be tempted to return back to Egypt, just like the Israelites, right? You know what? They, you, listen, you, we tend to do this, don't we? Think about it. We remember Egypt, but we forget the turmoil. Uh, we tend to look back and remember uh, that little hut on the edge of that field. It just looks right up at the pyramids. and It was beautiful, man. Oh, man, I miss that. I miss those days. You forget that every night your little hut was raided, your family was pillaged, the village burned, and nothing grew in your field, and you were forced into slave labor to build those pyramids. You forget that. We all do. The the sheep will realize that just because the shepherd is good doesn't mean his people are. You guys wear on one another, right? Don't look around right now. Just eyes focused on me. You do, And so there is a temptation at times to leave the fold. It's tempting to stray. It's tempting to return to groups that look like you, think like you, act like you, and accept you just the way you are, broken, messy, and dirty, and not like all those other broken, dirty, messy people who aren't like you, right? Because listen... When you are with other people who are broken, messy, and dirty, but they're broken, messy, and dirty in the same way you are, you guys can all convince yourself that you're not broken, messy, and dirty. You're clean. In your mind, you think so because everyone thinks the same way and acts the same way. Therefore, it must be right. So you stay there. And and then you come here, and everyone thinks different, acts different, talks different, looks different, and it's hard. You wear on one another. It's just not natural. So what happens? Little ones tend to wander off. And instead of wondering whether we're going to get the big house on the hill or not, we should be counting the sheep and going to look for them. Little ones will wander astray. They will. And I want you to notice something, because Jesus is contrasting two attitudes just like he did in the first section. The first section we saw him contrasting receiving to causing to stumble. Here he contrasts what? Despising to seeking and finding. He's contrasting these two things. Don't despise, instead seek and find. Don't despise, he says. Well, what's the opposite of despising little ones? Going to look for them, seek them, find them. Not only are we to receive them, but when they go astray, we're to seek to find and bring back into the fold those who have wandered off. That word despising, by the way, can also be translated as to look down on, to neglect, to think very little of, to have little regard for, little concern for. But notice, if we despise these little ones, we are what? Notice what he says in the text. If we despise these little ones, we are what? We are despising those whom the Father, Jesus in heaven, regards highly. So highly, in fact, that the very angels that attend to his throne are assigned to them. That's how highly our Father regards them. That's the concern our Father has for them. So great is his concern that he has willed it that not one of them should perish. So great is his concern, his regard that when one is brought back, that he rejoices more than the 99 that never went astray. So let's apply this this lesson here. Let's just think about this. A couple questions. Do you love what your father loves? Do you? The appropriate question in our time, are you more concerned about your portfolio, your hobbies, your own leisure than you are for God's family? Are you more concerned with your own comfort, your well-being or recreation Do you have any idea in this fold in our church which sheep are straying? I I know I interpret this as first and foremost primarily to pastors, those who will lead Christ's church. But friends, that in no way takes away the responsibility that the body has to minister to one another, which we find elsewhere in the the scriptures. So let's bring this in together. Do, Do you know... Who's straying among us? Do you care about who's straying among us? Do you really believe even in this very moment that there aren't some sheep even today in this fold that are getting dangerously close to the gate? That they're starting to mill around right at the wall, starting to think, you know what? It wasn't so bad on the outside. It wasn't so bad in Egypt. I forgot what the war was like. That they've forgotten the cost. They've forgotten the turmoil You know, as I was reading this and studying this about not despising little ones, I couldn't help but remember Jesus' words earlier in Matthew about not being able to serve two masters. You remember why he said that? Because inevitably, you will love one and hate the other. Or he says, you will despise one and serve the other. Can I just tell you something? It's really hard to serve yourself and serve others. When, when I'm primarily concerned with myself, it's really hard to have real regard and concern for others. I, I can go through the motions, but when my primary concern is me, I have very little time and energy to care about you. And so the question is, whom are you serving? Yourself or these little ones? You might think about what Jesus said so far like this. If I can paraphrase everything we've seen so far. You better not cause any one of these little ones to stumble. In fact, when they do stumble, you better go after them. That's essentially his command here. Which actually leads to what Jesus says next. Our third lesson. Sin needs to be corrected. He's telling us that sin needs to be corrected. How do we call these straying ones back? What's the way we do it? How do we do it? We go to them and we show them their sins. We we call them to repentance. We call them to return. And if they don't, eventually they're shown the gate because they're not sheep. Because true sheep will return. Most of us are familiar with this passage. I won't spend a lot of time here, but just real quick, what do we do? We go to them. The one who is straying, one who is in sin, one who sinned against us, as the verse says right here. Let's read verses 15 through 20 together. It says, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For two or three have gathered together in my name. I am there in their midst. There's a lot here, but let's just t- talk about some specific general principles about what we call discipline. Number one, there's a very specific order to this. Uh, the, the order is laid out pretty clearly, right? Right? Uh, we go first to our brother and sister. Uh, First and foremost, we address them. Listen, you need to hear this. You have a conflict leading to discipline that you know is a discipline-worthy conflict. You don't don't talk to your neighbor about it first. You you don't talk to to a whole bunch of others. You don't post it in, in the vague book is what I call it when people are posting on Facebook, but you know they're really talking about somebody else. And they post that only so that you would be concerned and interested in what they have to say. Drives me absolutely crazy. That's why I stay away from social media. You don't post it there. The Bible's clear. If someone has sinned against you, and it is a a sin that's leading to discipline, you go to them. Your brother. That's where you go. The order is clear. You address them in private. Then we establish the manner, if they do not repent, by bringing witnesses who can bear witness to the fact that there is indeed sin, and it does indeed need to be repented of. Then, of course, again, if it's not received, if the rebuke is refused, the matter is brought before the church. And if they refuse to listen to the church, then the person is shown the gate, not in a Uh, We're holier than you way in a mournful way, but ultimately in a way because we're called to determine who really, what what a Christian really looks like and what a Christian doesn't. And, And the biggest, the biggest attribute, biggest characteristic of a Christian is that they repent of sin. This is what Christians do. When they're confronted with sin, they repent of it. And so if they refuse to repent of sin and continue to live a lifestyle that's unto themselves, they're shown the gate. Another principle I want you to think of of worth mentioning quickly, though, is this isn't every sin. Hold on, before you run me out of here, think about this, what I mean by that is it's not every time your brother or sister sins against you perceived or real. It doesn't mean that, listen, every time, it doesn't mean that every time you're offended and you bring that to your brother and sister. In fact, this very process makes sure that will never happen. You know why? If you bring something to your brother and sister in regards to sin, and if they don't repent, which they might not, it keeps going until it reaches the church and they either repent or they're shown the door. So the outset, it, it, it must be weighed and thought about. Is this something that ultimately must be brought before the church or is this something that could be patiently endured? Now I know I've got to be careful here. I, I, this isn't winking at sin or overlooking it. We'll get there in a moment. I think what we need to have is a healthy check. <laughs> A healthy check and assessment of this. But third, I also want you to know something else. Notice the process of discipline. It's not quick. There are multiple steps to it. It's not authoritarian, nor is it permissive. Uh, More importantly, this this isn't the Sanhedrin we're talking about here. We're we're talking about the church who is keeping the gate between those who are in and those who are out. A true church... (laughs) Will, discipline, in love. It's how we bring the wandering sheep back from being astray. So sin does need to be corrected. And I want to keep moving. I told you there's a fourth lesson. I want to get to it quickly. Here's this lesson. Number, number four. You need to hear this. God's children will hurt you and you have to forgive them. Somebody probably needs to hear that today. Uh, God's children will hurt you and and you need you have to forgive them it's not an option we know this parable pretty well don't we i'll just skip right to the end verse 35 says my heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart what is he going to do do what you know the parable cast them to hell that's the gist And if you back up in this parable, the very beginning of the parable, look what we read in verse 21. I love this. Um, It says, Then Peter came and said to him, Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. So listen, just remember the context. Peter has just heard everything Jesus said, right? Remember, the question started with is who is going to be the greatest? in the kingdom. And Jesus says, listen, it's those who are humbled like a child, those who are able to be in the kingdom, those who are, are broken, dirty people. It's going to be filled with people who are in desperate need of, of the loving kindness of God, who are in desperate need of mercy and grace, who need patience. And Peter has sat, he's listened to all of this, the warning causing them, uh, one of these little ones to stumble, the admonition to seek those who go astray, the counsel of how that's to look within this covenant community. And at the end, of all of that he says okay how many times though jesus what are we talking here honestly how often will my brother sin against me and i have to forgive him as many as seven times is that it sounds like a, a good a good round number right look what jesus says to him in verse 22 he said to him i do not say to you up to seven times but up to 70 times seven this is so like us isn't it Listen, we, we have our limits. I've heard it from people who love and follow Jesus too. They've just reached their, their wits end and they are no longer capable of forgiving this person or that person. Let me simply stay where we are here. The, the primary lesson in this text is that, that God's children will hurt one another. Friends, look at me. You're going to be hurt. You will be sinned against. You will need to forgive, extend forgiveness to others, and it is not an option. If sin is necessary, as in inevitable, little ones are going to go astray. If there is going to be the need for rebuke, possibly correction, going all the way even to excommunication, do you think that there are going to be moments or opportunities where the sheep are hurting one another? I'll take it a step further. I, I've been angling for a while. This happens, uh, this, this text. Remember, it's primarily for the leaders of the church. The pastor gets bit sometimes. It happens. Okay, I, I love you guys, I do, but I've been in ministry about six years now, and I've, I've been bit more than once. Jesus says, get over it. That's his message to me when I get bit. Uh, g- get over it, you know why? Because you bit God. Oh, yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I'm a nobody, but God? Uh, and let me, just, let me just tell you, if you want to serve God's people in any real capacity, get ready to get dirty. Uh, get ready to get spit on, to get bit. Get ready to be disregarded. It's just the reality of our present context. And where is our present context? Remember, the kingdom has been initiated. We've entered the gate. We're under the reign and rule of Christ. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ, and yet, not yet. We haven't received our spiritual bodies, I nor you. Uh, Neither one of us obey the Holy Spirit perfectly. So, we sin against one another. This parable is really straightforward, isn't it? I'm not gonna dig that deep into it because I need to come to a close soon, but let me, let's do this. Look at verse 26. You wanna know the problem with the unmerciful servant? Look at verse 26 and you'll see it. What's his problem? Verse 26 says, so the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before the king saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. He fell on his knees. That's a good start. Have patience with me. That's not good what does he say next? And I will repay you everything. So what's the problem with the merciful servant? He, he doesn't ask for mercy, he asks for patience. He doesn't ask for mercy, he asks for patience. He says, give me just a little bit longer and I will repay it. King, master, just a little bit more time, that, that's all I need. You know what he owes, right? 200,000 years worth of wages or something like that. Some ridiculous amount that he could never, ever possibly repay, and yet he what? He doesn't cry out for mercy? He doesn't acknowledge that his only hope is that the king would forgive this debt, that his master would forgive this debt? Which, which, by the way, don't miss this, means that the master is assuming the debt. Right? Uh, The money was taken, and for the king to forgive this debt, he has to assume the loss. Doesn't make the money reappear. He says, I will take the loss, and I will have pity on him. And he turns him out, and we know what happened the next day. Why? See, the reason he didn't... Ask for mercy or show mercy because he didn't even know he needed it. He never even knew he needed mercy. God have mercy on us if we do not realize how great our debt was. You want to know why we struggle with forgiveness? Do you want to know that's such a tender issue for us? It's right there. We have no idea how great our debt was and how great the cost the Lord Jesus paid. That's it. That's why we struggle with forgiveness. You have somebody in your heart right now you're struggling to forgive? You know what you need to focus on? The gospel your sin, what Christ has done for your sin. And if you, if you are able to clearly and in depth share the gospel with yourself and you still feel like you have a right not to forgive, friends, you've got a problem with the gospel you just shared. Absolutely true. I need you to hear this. Let's summarize all of this. Think about this in the context. God's children will need to be led. They'll need to be received, not caused to stumble. They'll need to be sought after, not despised. They'll need to be corrected. And sometimes, even some will need to be removed from the community. But they'll also need to be forgiven. Often. Forgiven once, twice, three, four, six, seven, seventy times. And now, look, I tell you right now. There's a sheep who will continue to return to Jesus when called to repent. Lord willing, I will continue to forgive and bear with you until my dying breath. Each of us have to have this kind of mindset. How much have we been forgiven? We're never going to exhaust that. And so here's the point. We can stop forgiving when we have forgiven as much as we've been forgiven. That's when we can stop forgiving. You are allowed to no longer forgive when you have forgiven as much as you've been forgiven. That's a summary of that parable. One more task here before we close. Turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel 34 with me. Ezekiel, it's a pretty big book. It's in the Old Testament and called a major prophet because his, his book's pretty big. After Isaiah, after Jeremiah, after Lamentations, you'll get to Ezekiel. Ezekiel 34. Because Ezekiel 34, by the way, is really what Jesus is doing in this entire passage. This is the whole thing. It has to do with shepherds, right? What's the problem? We've seen this even in the book of John. uh, The people are without a shepherd. So, praise be to God, he has sent his own son to be the shepherd of his people. Okay, that's great, but... What's just transpired in the context of Matthew 18? Actually, in chapter 16, if you don't know this, Jesus, much like he does in our context, starting in John 12, where we're at, he begins to tell his disciples that he's going to suffer and he's going to die. He hasn't explained it yet, but, but he knows well that he's going to suffer, he's going to die, he's going to be raised, then ascend to the right hand of the Father. He is not going to be present. There will be a need for under-shepherds who continue to care for for Christ's sheep, So it makes sense here that after all is transpired, Jesus explains what this is going to look like, which is what he's done in Matthew 18. Now, in Ezekiel 34, here's the problem. What Jesus is warning about is exactly what transpired in Israel. What Jesus is warning them about is exactly what happened in Israel. Look at verse 3 of Ezekiel 34 with me. You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool... You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. The context here is that the shepherds had abused the sheep. And this was a normative practice. This had become the normal. So what's Jesus doing? He's establishing now a new community. He's establishing a new people of God founded in him. And his shepherds will not be like those shepherds. Verse 4. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The diseased, you have not healed. The broken, you have not bound up. The scattered, you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost, but with force and with severity, you have dominated them. You see this? It sounds an awful lot like what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 18. You will not run over them as the Gentiles do, lording over them. You will not exercise authority as the Gentiles do. So also Jesus is teaching his undershepherds to shepherd his people as Christ himself has shepherded. There's more there. Go read it for yourselves, by the way, and unpack it. Read the rest of Ezekiel 34. Something tells me you're going to have some time within the next couple of days uh, to yourself to read. So read Ezekiel 34, which brings us, of course, uh, to verses 23 and 24. This is what Ezekiel promises. Then I will set over them my shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed themselves and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Jesus is calling for nothing less than his under shepherds to reflect his shepherding. He's the faithful shepherd. He's the true shepherd of God's people in Israel. So he's the one who does not cause his people to stumble, though many have stumbled over him. He's the one who has sought and found the lost sheep of Israel and those from another fold. He's the one who exercises authority over his people and corrects them when needed and through whom, because of his life, has given his life as a ransom for many. Because of that, we have the forgiveness of sins. He's the great forgiver of sins. So, we are to reflect that. So, if I might conclude where we started, I know we don't need this passage to know uh, that the abuse that's transpired within the evangelical Protestant community by the hands of pastors is unacceptable and wrong. I know we don't need that. I know we don't need it, it to tell us that it's hideous. But we do need to recognize and realize that pastors, too, are weak and fallible. See, part of the issue is that we put pastors on pedestals. We make them celebrities. You can probably name 50 pastors of different churches than your own. This is our culture and community and the theological basis. We, we, We worship them in a way. Listen, pastors aren't simply under shepherds, they're also sheep. You have a responsibility to even make sure that the pastors of this church don't discharge our responsibilities in regard to this chapter. You know that? So, in the midst of all of this, one final application I conclude with is this. We too, among Christ's church, among Christ's sheep, Better to tie a millstone around my neck and throw me into the depths of the sea. May God have mercy on us. Please, would you, would you stand and pray with me? Gracious Father, Lord, will you please forgive your people? Father, we know that within our body, not within our family, not here at Great Gables, but more broadly indeed, that there have been under-shepherds who have proclaimed the name of Christ, who have been called out to shepherd in the name of your Son Jesus Christ, who have abused and misused your people. Father, I just I pray right now that you would reveal each and every one. Father, would you shine light on their darkness? Lord, would you please protect your people? Would you cause your people to rise up, to run them out? Father, would you cause true shepherds, true under shepherds and pastors to be diligent in guarding their own hearts and looking for the wolves that so quickly come in amongst us? Father, I ask for your protection, please, Lord. I ask that you'd even guard my own heart and mind, that you'd help me to be faithful pray the same for my brother Justin as well. You should guard him, protect him. I also ask that you would raise up other shepherds here, even in our midst, who would stand beside us and serve not out of any desire of gain whatsoever, but out of true love for the broken, the destitute, the foolish, and the weak. Those whom you have chosen to shame the wise and strong of the world. Father, we are your people. Help us to be more faithful, we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen, amen.